passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Have you ever wondered what the point of all this is? I'm not just talking about Sunday morning church worship services, but, but just the point of everything. The point of life in general. I don't want to be too philosophical as we begin here, but I think it's, it's a question that many of us wrestle with. Of why did God create us? Why did God create you? Why did God create me? Why did God create us? Many people wrestle with this question. What, what's the point on an intellectual level? And, and honestly, philosophy halls in countless colleges are, are filled with people who are wrestling with these questions. And, and not to make light of, of philosophy, uh, but a lot of times the, the answers that they come up with aren't that helpful. Many people wrestle with this question on a theological level. They wonder about the the, the questions of the Bible, and how does the Bible apply to why I am here? Why did God specifically create me? Is there a purpose for my life? And so many more, and far more importantly, many people wrestle with these questions on a personal level. They find themselves struggling with low self-worth, and so they ask themselves, am I a mistake? Is there any point for me being here? Other people find themselves wrestling with depression after a job loss or, or a loss of a family member, and all they know is, is pain and hurt, and they say, what's the point of all of this? And still others find themselves moving into a new community without friends, without family. All they feel is loneliness and darkness. What's the point of all this? Why did God create you and me. It's a, an important question for us to ask, to wrestle through. And, and last week, as we began or continued our way through Genesis chapter 1, we saw that God really gives us a couple answers to this question. That God did indeed create us, but he didn't just create us. He created everything else on the face of the planet, everything that we see. He created it effortlessly. And while we were working our way through Genesis 1, we were reminded with confidence that God is in charge. That even when it seems like there is no hope, that God is our hope. Even when it seems like nothing makes sense in our lives, we can cling to God as the one who brings order out of the chaos of our lives. And as we look at creation, we're reminded of God's infinite power. We're reminded of God's infinite love for us. We're reminded of God's infinite power when we look at the greatness of creation, all that he has made, and we say God is indeed powerful. And we are reminded of his infinite love when we realize, according to Genesis 1, that God created us as the pinnacle of his creation, that he created us to live with him and to rule alongside of him over his creation. And this morning, as we continue our way through Genesis We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 2, God's continued creative work here. That's going to answer this question. Why are we here? 
What is the point to all of this? And, and many people, just, just here at the start, many people look at Genesis 2 and they say that it's a second creation story. They say that the Bible can't be trusted because Genesis chapter 2 uh, gives us a, a very different picture of how God created things than in Genesis chapter 1. They'll say, look at Genesis 1. Genesis 1 describes plants and animals being created before humans. But if you look in Genesis 2, you have humans being created before the plants and animals. How are we supposed to trust a book that can't get it right, can't get things straight within the first two chapters of the entire book? This is the argument that many people will argue and wrestle with, but I think it's making a controversy out of nothing. As we look at Genesis 2, we're going to see that this is a a chapter that zooms in on day 6 of creation. It, It fleshes out day 6 of creation and specifically focuses on how God created humanity and far more importantly, why God created humanity. Again, this is such an important passage for us because it sheds light on this question of why am I here? Why are we here? Why God decided to create us? And if you've wondered about that, you've struggled with that on a personal level, the good news of Genesis 2 is here we have an answer. If you find yourself somewhat on the outside of the church, a little skeptical of this whole Christianity thing, not really sure what to make of this church thing, then Genesis 2, again, is for you because it answers some of the most important questions you will ever have to wrestle with. Why we are here. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 4 of this chapter, and we're going to look at the creation of humanity. But before we do that, let's, let's take a moment and pray. God, we thank you for your incredible word. What, a, what an amazing gift that you've given us. And, and now as we open it up, as we look at this passage, God, I pray that we would do so reverently. That we would do so in a spirit of worship. And that you would come and speak to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, let's start in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. It says this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created on the day that the Lord God made the heavens or earth in the heavens. I want to just stop right there as we look at these words. They, they serve as an introduction to the rest of this passage. They serve as a, a marker here at the beginning to, to remind us or, or to tell us that something new is being talked about here. You notice how it starts. It starts with this phrase, these are the generations of. This is a very common phrase in the book of Genesis. We're going to see it multiple times as we work our way through Genesis. And, and it's, it's one of the ways that the author, who we believe to be Moses, was breaking up this book to help us uh, digest it, to make sense of this book. And so multiple times as you are reading Genesis, you will see these are the generations of blank. One of the interesting things uh, about this phrase is that it is describing the offspring of whatever is mentioned. Okay, so let me explain that. Later on in Genesis, one of the main characters we're going to be introduced to is Abraham. Abraham, his story spans several chapters of Genesis, a very important figure. And his story starts with, these are the generations of Terah. Terah is his father. It talks about the offspring of Terah, focusing on Abraham. 
Later on, we, we look at the story of Jacob, another story in Genesis that spans multiple chapters, and it starts with, these are the generations of Isaac, who is Jacob's father. You might be saying, Jordan, why on earth does that matter? Well, I think I mentioned that there is this controversy that some people think Genesis 2 is a contradicting creation story, but right here, even at the very beginning, we see that that is not the purpose of this book. This is not, uh, or this section, this is not about the creation of the heavens and the earth, but this is about the offspring of the heavens and the earth. And that might sound weird to you, and I'm going to be honest, it kind of is, this, this language of the offspring of the heavens and the earth. But the focus here, the reminder that we have from this, is that we aren't all that special in the grand, grand scheme of things. We have been created out of the earth. We are earthlings in the realist sense. And right here, as we begin Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25, we are reminded of our very, very humble origins. But we don't just start there. So let's keep reading, picking up in verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Here in these verses, we see the creation of humanity, how God accomplished this on day six of creation. And we start in this scene on a barren patch of land. God had created plants and animals, but we see in Genesis 1 that he really gives them orders to fill the earth. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, when he's creating the animals, there's this emphasis on the ability of the, uh, of the plants, rather. When he, we see that there's this emphasis on the plant's ability to reproduce, recreate itself. When it talks about plants yielding their seed, the ability to fill the earth. When we get to the language, uh, uh, the, the blessing to the fish and, and to the birds, we see that they are commanded to fill the earth. All of this hasn't taken place yet. God's not done with his filling the earth. He, he intends for his creation to be a part of that. That's why he created them to be able to reproduce themselves. And so we zoom in on a piece of land that is barren. It is a desert. And remember, this is written to Israel while they are in a desert. This would have made a great deal of sense to them. They found themselves in a desert, relying fully and utterly on God for their provision. And here, God sets the scene for the creation of humanity in a desert. Now we see that there's this mist hovering over the face of the land. And, and, and a lot of times when we think of deserts, we oftentimes don't think of a mist. But I, I encourage us to look at this mist as more of an eerie sense of fog than anything else we find ourselves in a place where God has begun his creative work, but he hasn't finished it yet. And so we zoom in on the creation of Adam. God takes this barren land where there's no plants, and he begins to form it. Last week, as we were looking at Genesis 1, we were reminded that God is an artist. He's a potter. And here, in the very truest sense of the word, here is the potter in action, taking a lump of clay and forming it into what he desires. He takes a lump of what in Hebrew is called adama or, or dirt, and he forms 
Adam, or man. God is a creative, artistic God. And this isn't some sort of magic trick. It's, It's not some sort of mystical property of ancient dirt. It's a reminder that God is the source of life. That nothing would happen without him. And so he breathes life into it. And the first Adam, or the first human, Adam, is formed out of the dirt. But God isn't satisfied with keeping Adam in a desert. So that's where we pick up in verse 8 where it says this. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God has formed Adam, but he's not satisfied with keeping Adam in a a desert. And so the story shifts to a land called Eden. We don't know a lot about Eden. All we are told here is it is a place in the east. This is east from Canaan, east from where Israel currently is. And, And it's important for us to recognize Eden is not the name of the garden. The garden is not called Eden. Eden is the territory, the land where the garden is located. And we might be wondering, well, what was this garden like? When my wife and I lived in Chicago, one of our favorite places to visit was the Chicago Botanic Gardens. In the midst of the craziness of Chicago, a busyness of of really the concrete jungle, there was a, a patch of land, almost 400 acres, just filled with wildlife just filled with plants and animals. Over 2.5 million plants were found in this garden. Over 10,000 kinds of different plants. Paths would carve themselves through this garden, along small lakes, through the forests, and onto small islands. It was a place of quiet. It was a place of tranquility. It was a place of peace. When I think of the Garden of Eden... I think of a magnified version of this garden, an infinitely better version of this garden that I have experienced. It was a place where God created it to be a place of peace. It wasn't just a vegetable garden. It was a jewel created by God to show off the magnificence of his power in creation. This is why it describes it here as a place where every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food can be found. The message of this garden is clear. This is heaven on earth. So we find ourselves in this place, this this heaven on earth, and here we find in the midst of the garden there's these two trees. The first tree is the the tree of life, and the second one the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, And these aren't mystical objects. They are planted there by God to to point us to specific things. So let's start with the easy one, the tree of life. What was the tree of life? Well, it was a tree that was planted there to point us to the source of life. It was planted there to remind us or point us to God himself. While humanity lived in the garden, and when they would eat from the tree, they were showing and reminding themselves that they depended utterly upon God for their sustenance. They depended utterly upon God to sustain their lives. This is why at the end of Revelation, we find this tree reappear. We find this tree reappear in the new Jerusalem as a gift from God. So we have one tree that, that symbolizes dependence upon God. But then we have this other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
there have been a lot of different uh, debates and, and interpretations of what this tree actually is. But I think that the clearest understanding is that this is a tree that represents moral autonomy. It's a tree that represents our ability to make our own decisions. In the truest sense, it is a tree that represents our independence from God. And so right here in the garden, we have a tree that represents our dependence upon God. And also a tree that represents our independence from God. Very significant passage, very, very significant uh, imagery here. We're going to look more at that next week. Uh, but let's continue looking at, at this garden here in chapter 2. <coughs> Picking up in verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gahon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Here are these four verses kind of give us some detailed landmarks of where Eden was located, uh, at least more than in the east. And as we look at this passage, we see that Eden and the garden specifically in Eden, is located near the source of four rivers. We're told the names here, the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. But placing this on a map can be very difficult. It can be very difficult for us because we don't have any knowledge of rivers named uh, Pishon or Gihon. We don't have any knowledge of a land called Havilah. We don't have any idea of where the Tigris and the Euphrates share a source. The land of Cush, when it's talked about in the Bible, typically refers to East Africa. So a lot of people will read this passage and they'll say, well, is the Bible wrong? Does it have anything to, is it right? Does it have anything that we can learn from it? Uh, a couple of things. First, we should uh, be hesitant to call the Bible wrong when we're looking at pre-flood geography. Uh, things don't look the same now as they did 100,000 100, years, or 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago certainly don't look the same as they did thousands of years of time, especially if there's a climactic disaster that takes place in between. Second, uh, from this passage and, and other passages, we see that there's good enough evidence to, to point to the Garden of Eden being found somewhere in the Middle East, probably in, in modern-day Iraq. And, and third, and probably most importantly, it ultimately doesn't matter. Ultimately, it doesn't matter where the garden was. The purpose of this passage is not to help us find the garden, because wherever it was at one point is now gone. It has been destroyed with the rebellion of humanity, leading creation and rebellion against God. The garden was lost forever. The tree of life may have been preserved, but the garden itself was gone. And this isn't bad news. Revelation reminds us, makes us clear that the future is far superior to the past. But we find ourselves in these verses, seeing the creation of man, the, set, the scene is set. He's been placed in the garden in Eden. But we might be wondering, well, what does this tell us about who we are and why we have been created by God? And that's what the rest of this passage is about. So let's jump into verse 15. It says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree, of the garden. 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. <clears throat> the first reason here that we see why God created us, the reason why we exist is this, that God created us for work. God created us for work. God creates the man and he places him in the garden to do what? He places him in the garden to work it and to keep it. This is a profoundly important truth for us as we are trying to understand why we are here. And earlier this year here at Crosswinds, we spent a great deal of time looking at the integration of of our faith with our work. So I don't want to belabor the point, but I think there are some important things for us to pull out of this passage as we see why we are here. So let's see what this says. When it, when it says work and keep, what does this mean for us as we recognize that one of the reasons why we have been created is to work? Remember how this, land, uh, this passage starts. It starts with a, a desert. It's a place that is unfinished, that needs to be cultivated, needs to be worked. This is what creation before the fall was. It was a location that wasn't finished. It was a reminder to us, as God creates Adam out of this barren land, that this is what he is supposed to do. He's supposed to work the land, for there is much work to be done in the land. God creates a beautiful, perfect garden for him to live in, yes. But even that needs to be cultivated. Even that needs to be maintained, needs to be kept. God creates us to work. Now, last week, as we were looking at the creation of humanity, we saw that other creation stories from other religions told us that uh, the gods would create humans to be their slaves, to work for them. God creates humanity to work, but he doesn't create them to be his slaves. He creates them to be rulers alongside of him. He creates them to subdue the earth, to to walk alongside him, to cultivate the earth, to follow his footsteps, and taking raw materials, as we saw last week, and forming those, and making something greater out of those raw materials. Later, in Genesis chapter 2, we see the creative work of humanity following in these footsteps of God, when it says this in in chapter 2, verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Here we see what it means to work and to keep the garden. A tangible way of this human, this governor of God's creation, actually accomplishing his work. In the first five days of creation, God had been the one who created things and then named those things. But here, as we get to day six, God creates things still, but he says, Adam, I want you to be the one who names them. I want you to help me. I want you to follow my footsteps to work the garden and to keep it. This is just a tangible example of what work was like for Adam. Remember, this all takes place before the fall. God created Adam for work. He created us for work as well. And that doesn't mean that we have to spend our entire lives working. That doesn't mean that retirement is a bad thing by any means. That doesn't mean that we aren't being obedient to God if we stay at home with children. Those things are work in the example or in the eyes of Scripture. God calls us to contribute. 
to continue to cultivate. That doesn't mean that we earn a paycheck as we honor God through working. God created each and every one of us for work. And if you find yourself in a place, you wonder why I'm here, well, there's your first answer. You've been placed here by God to do work on this earth, to cultivate this earth. That doesn't mean that the only thing that is faithful to God is agricultural work. We can cultivate things in many different ways, but God has called us and placed us here for work. So that's the first thing that we see here. What what else has God created us for? Take a look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed, it up, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh." And the man and his wife were naked, both naked and were not ashamed. You want to know why else God has created us? Another reason why we are here? We've been created for wedlock. God created us for work, and God has created us for wedlock. And notice how this section starts. This section starts with a declaration that God's creation is not good. Up to now, every time God has looked at his creation, he has said, It is good. And so this declaration of not good really sticks out to us as we are working our way through Genesis. This isn't Adam coming to God and saying, you know what, God, you've done a good job so far. I'm I'm really impressed with your ability to create me. But you see those two animals over there, those two animals over there, those two birds that are flying in the sky. All of them have a partner. It sure would be nice if I had one of those. This isn't Adam coming to God and saying, you know what, God, you need to improve your creation. This is God taking a step back looking at his creation and saying, you know what, I've done a good job, but I'm not done yet. I'm not finished yet. I'm going to continue working at this. And so God brings the animals before Adam, and and he's not really looking for a suitable partner for Adam. God doesn't really think that he's going to find an animal that's going to be a good fit for Adam. He knows that Adam is lacking a partner. His desire is that Adam would know that he is lacking a partner. So he brings all of these animals to to Adam to name them and, and to bring them before Adam. And as Adam is naming them, he's recognizing, you know what? There is no one else like me. There's no one else besides me that I can relate with, that I have for my own. And so God puts him to sleep. God pulls a, a part of Adam and creates the woman. There's some beautiful parallels here between verse 7, the creation of Adam, and the, the creation of Eve in verse 22. In both locations, man and woman are created from something else. They aren't created out of nothing. Not only that, but they are completely reliant on God to give them life. 
They are wholly dependent upon God for their very being. God creates Adam, and later he creates Eve. And here we see this first wedding in human history. After Adam awakes, God takes Eve and he brings her to her husband. As her heavenly father, he's the one who's giving her away. And Adam, finally aware of his lack of, his part, of a partner, just looks at his wife and exclaims with joy, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This at last is the one that I'm waiting for. The one that I have longed for. The one that will complete me. First wedding in human history. And this passage closes with a look at marriage as a whole and how crucial it is for our understanding of marriage today. It talks about language of of leave your family and, and hold fast to your wife. And this language is covenantal language. In other words, this language is used in the Old Testament to refer to Israel's relationship with God. Whenever Israel was forsaking God, turning their back on God, it was saying that they were leaving God. In the same way, whenever they were faithful to God, it reminded them and said that they were holding fast to God. What's happening here in Genesis chapter 2 is saying that, you know what, that, that relationship that we see with you and God, in the same way that you have a covenant, God is also making a covenant between two people. The man is to leave behind his past family relationships, to forsake those, and to create a new family relationship with his bride. To hold fast to her. God created us for wedlock. Of course, you might be recognizing that that some of us are alone, that that are single, that, that aren't married. We find ourselves, whether you were married at one time or you've never been married, you you wonder, is this passage saying that you're missing out on part of being human? Are you missing out on part of the purpose of humanity? It's an important question. It's an important thing for us to wrestle through. And to be completely honest, I wonder if Jesus wrestled through this. Jesus was single his entire life. I wonder if he, when reading Genesis chapter 2 and saw one of the uh, purposes of humanity was for wedlock, he looked at that and said, I wonder if I'm missing out. I wonder if Paul did the same thing as he was reading Genesis chapter 2 as a single person. God created us for wedlock, yes, that's a part of being human. But even more than that, God created us for community. God created us for fellowship with others. When we look at the New Testament and we see the closest relationships between people, it's not between a husband and wife. It's between members of Christ's body, between members of his church. I'm not saying that that's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, but it's important for us to recognize that each of us has been created for community. Each of us has been created for a need for relationships with other people. And that's really the focus of Genesis chapter 2. It's not just marriage. It's saying, yes, that we have been created for wedlock, but even more than that, God has created us for relationships. God has created us to live with others in community. God has created us to follow him in community. So that's the second thing that this passage tells us, that God created us 
for wedlock. And when I say wedlock, I really just mean community. The final thing, God created us for worship. God created us for worship. All of us have been created by God to worship him. This is the highest calling in our lives. When we are working, when we are in community, God wants us to worship him. And to see that from this passage, we have to explore a couple different things. First one is the name of God here. Notice the name of God in Genesis 2 and compare that to the name of God in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God is called just plain God. He's he's God. And this is a picture of a God who's very powerful and strong and able to accomplish anything. But in Genesis 2, we see a different name. The Lord God. The Lord God. This is the name that God used in his covenant relationship with the people of Israel. In the same way, in the New Testament, God uses the same name for his son, Jesus. Paul calls Jesus the Lord God multiple times. This chapter in Genesis 2 is really highlighting the relationship between God and humanity. It's highlighting the covenantal relationship. The fact that God has created humanity in his image. And he's created them for a relationship with him. This is seen throughout the Old Testament, but it's most clearly seen at the cross. It is a relationship of worship. So that's the name of God. But notice also the language here that describes Adam's work. Adam is created to work and to keep the garden. These two words are are primarily used in the Old Testament to refer to the work of priests in the temple. They would work in the temple. They would keep the temple. The word work can also be translated as worship here. And, And at the risk of sounding too spiritual, as we look at Genesis 2, as we look at this garden located in Eden, we see that it's a sort of almost a pre temple. That Adam has been created by God to serve as his priest. To serve in a place where he continually worships God. In all that he does. Not only that, but in in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis 3, we see this picture of the garden as almost as a temple. In the same way as the temple faces east, so also the entrance to the garden faces east. The temple was a place that was filled with gold and onyx. The onyx was actually worn by the priests who ministered there. Onyx isn't mentioned all that often in the Bible. When it is mentioned, it's mentioned here in the land of Havilah, a place that is filled with gold and onyx. Genesis 2 is making clear that this garden is a place where God dwells. This garden it's a place where God is to be worshipped. Not only that, but we, we continue on and we see this mention of marriage. And, and when we look at the New Testament and we come back here to Genesis chapter 2, we see that, that Paul makes clear uh, when he's talking about marriage that marriage is created, has been invented by God to point us to the relationship between Christ and his church. As we look at the relationship between Christ and his church, we're reminded of the relationship between a bride and her husband. Paul references this passage in Ephesians when he does this. And marriage, like everything else in the garden, has been created by God for us to worship 
him. It is a means for us to know God, to point us to God. So if you wonder why God has created you, if you find yourself in a place where where you're struggling with that, with the purpose of life, know from this passage that God created you for work, that God created you for wedlock or, or for community, and God created you, most of all, for worship. Without these three things, there's something that's missing in your life. Without work or contributing to society, without community, without worship, there is something that is missing in your life. God created you. He knit you together before you were born. He knew you before you were born. And God created you for a purpose. God created you to work, to contribute to the world, whether that's through raising kids or taking care of your house or earning a paycheck. God created you for work. God created you for community. He knew that it was not good for man to be alone in any form. And so he created us for community, to live in community. For many of us, that will be marriage. For others of us, it will be through the church. God created us for fellowship and for interaction. And above all, God created us for worship, to honor him, not just through our words or through song, but certainly through those. God created us to worship him, not just at church here on Sunday mornings, but in all of our lives to worship him. While we work, we worship. While we live in community, we can worship. Every fiber of your being was created for worship. That's the reason why God created you. That's the reason why humanity is the pinnacle of his creation, to honor him in all that we do. Let's respond in worship. Please pray with me. God, we thank you. We, we thank you for the truth of this passage. We thank you for what it teaches us about you, about our relationship with you. And we ask now, God, that you would help us to live this out, to honor you through our work, to honor you through our relationships, and to honor you through our worship. God, we desire that above all else. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.